What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Uh, perhaps you yourself are a non-Catholic or a former Catholic, whatever, and you've got a question or two about the Catholic faith. We'd love to, to uh, answer that question for you. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, and we do have listeners literally all over the world, here's a phone number just for you. You'll dial uh, the number 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. Uh, the address for that ctc at EWTN.com, ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to uh, ask a question via YouTube or perhaps Facebook, we're streaming there right now. Look for the comments box. That's where you want to put that question of yours, and then uh, Jeff will see it. He'll shoot it to us, and uh, we'll take it from there. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? I'm doing decent. Thank you. With all this hot weather, has that changed your uh, your lunch plans? Or I'm, I'm just I just I'm a lentil kind of guy. I eat my lentils every day. You're sticking with it. Oh yeah. The only variety in my diet comes at dinner time. Okay. Yeah. Well, at least there's that. Yeah. So we're going to lead off today with a question we received overnight last night on the EWTN listener comment line. My name is Mary. I'm from Denton, Maryland. I heard somebody say that, in reference to Christ on the cross, that he was sleeping. And I have a three-year-old granddaughter and an atheistic son-in-law and a daughter who has left the church. And I would like to bring this child into the church. Their big concern is that how is this child going to handle looking at a dead man on the cross? My question is, would it be appropriate for me to refer to Christ on the cross to a preschooler in terms of his, he is sleeping, that he uh, will, will be raised, awakened? Mm. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So uh, right off the bat, I can assure you that generations and generations and generations of Christians have brought the three-year-olds to Holy Liturgy or Mass uh, over the last 2,000 years without traumatizing them at, in the presence uh, uh, you know, of the sight of the crucifix. Sure. Uh, uh, you know, I, I didn't grow up Catholic, but I definitely grew up Christian, and we didn't have crucifixes mm-hmm. in our churches, but we had crosses, and I knew at a very young age what that meant. I understood very well about the crucifixion of Jesus, and any Catholic child could tell you the same without experiencing it as in any way traumatic, because it's normalized. It's 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 the way they've always experienced churches. They you know it's it's part of the architecture, quite literally, and and it's it's the world they they live in and grow up in, and they don't they don't experience it as traumatic in the slightest. Um, should you uh, should you refer to Jesus as sleeping? Absolutely not. That, that, that it's it's false for one thing. I mean. Try crucifixion sometime. You're not going to nod off. You no, know, he, no. he definitely wasn't sleeping, 
and uh, and it really undercuts the I mean the the, the suffering that Christ endured on the cross is integral to the nature of the atonement, to the Christian faith. And, and uh, the call on all Christians is that we take up our own crosses and follow Jesus, that we be willing to uh, take the suffering that comes to us in life and to willingly embrace it, uh, you know, out of obedience to God and trust in his providence and be able to say with Christ, um, not my will but thine be done. So I mean, that's the idea that, you know, we, we somehow get a pass on suffering and that when hard times comes, we get to get knocked out and then wake up when it's all over. Mm-hmm. That That's not the way life works. It's not what the cross of Christ teaches us about our own lot in life. Now, all that being said, I do think that children can be traumatized by religious practice, not by the image of the crucifix or, or authentic Catholic doctrine. Um, but I, I do know instances of kids that have been traumatized by, say, um, you know, an overly apocalyptic view of the Christian life. And this mm. was particularly true in my fundamentalist culture when they're told that, you know, your community is the, the one tiny little community of the elect in a, in a sea of sin and trouble that's totally controlled by the devil and the end is around the corner and the Russians are all going to nuke us and it's part of the, the grand plan and Jesus is going to come back and set up a kingdom in Jerusalem and so just hang on by your fingertips until then while the rest of the world goes to hell in a handbasket. That Oh, and by the way, you know, the bad guys on the other side of the political aisle are coming for you with, with pinchers in the rack and iron maidens and torture chambers, right? Wow. That, that, like that, that paranoid sense of, uh, of uh, religious identity can, can be traumatic, uh, but that's no part of authentic Catholic faith, which is... Uh, out there to be transformative of the world and recognizes that the church is a place uh, where uh, life in all its fullness can be lived and enjoyed and embraced in art and music and science and philosophy and culture and government and policy and 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 uh, works of benevolence and care for the poor and all of this. We're out there making a difference in the world to transform it into the good place that God intended for it to be. So for a uh, three-year-old, a preschooler, you wouldn't have to go into detail, great detail. No, on the... that's Jesus. Right. And that's where we leave it. Very good. And uh, thanks so much uh, for your call on the EWTN listener comment line. Matt is watching us uh, on YouTube this afternoon in the UK. Matt says, why does St. Augustine seem to be the most popular church father in Protestant circles? And why is he sometimes called the first Protestant or a Calvinist before Calvin? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so first of all, there is absolutely nothing Protestant about Augustine, and there's nothing Calvinist about Augustine. But there is something Augustinian about Protestantism because there's something Augustinian about Latin and Western Christianity, right? So Augustine is the father who gives us the theological categories within which Western Christianity will develop. Uh, Specifically, before Augustine, and, and this continues to be the case in the Catholic East, the way that Christians talked about salvation was not in terms of justification, Right, the the language of of grace and law and justification, which is very characteristic of the way Westerners have thought about salvation for fifteen hundred years, uh, that is an Augustinian contribution. Pr- prior to Augustine and outside of the West, there's a whole different set of theological categories that get used to talk about salvation in the life of faith. And so um, Augustine believed, like all Catholics believe, uh, that we are uh, that we're justified by grace and not by our own works. And I'll come back to that thought after the break, because here comes the music. Very good. We'll uh, continue that from Matt in the UK. So, uh, Matt, if you're listening to us, uh, sit tight. We'll continue that in just a moment. We'll also get to Greg, who called at the end of yesterday's program. And I'm very glad that he called back. Greg in Connecticut, stand by. Also, Mark in Cornelius, Oregon. And we've got some lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. 
It's called a communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. We have two lines open right now, 833-288-3986. Before we go to the phones and everything else, uh, we're going to continue that question here from Matt in the UK watching us on YouTube today. Again, Matt said, uh, why does St. Augustine seem to be the most popular church father in Protestant circles, and why is he sometimes called the first Protestant or a Calvinist before Calvin? Yeah, okay, so I started discussing this before the break. I'm going to come back to it now. So, um, when Luther, Martin Luther, arrived at his own peculiar understanding of salvation by meditating on the Book of Romans, um, he he understood himself. Luther saw himself as operating in a framework that was given to him by Saint Augustine. And he, in his own biography, in Luther's autobiography, he he talks about the role that Augustine's book entitled On the Spirit and the Letter, the, the role that that had in shaping his own thinking. And what Augustine says in, is on, spirit, in, on the Spirit and the Letter is something that every Catholic believes, namely that we are justified, and for Augustine that's tantamount to saying we're saved, uh, by grace through faith and not by works of the law. And for Augustine, he understands that to mean that no, no act of moral striving uh, on our own strength can make us right with God. Uh, what Augustine believed instead was that the Spirit of God comes and renovates your moral life, changes you from the inside, and empowers you to live a moral life that you yourself could never live apart from grace. And so for Augustine and for Catholics, through the grace of God, which comes not by our own efforts, we don't, we don't win the grace of God, it's given to us gratis, freely, uh, we are, we're transformed inwardly and enabled to genuinely merit salvation— we do the meriting. There is merit. There is reward. Mm-hmm. But it comes as a result of God's work within us. It's not something—we don't lift ourselves up by our own moral bootstraps. God lifts us up. Now, Luther read that, and he was really taken with the idea that God's grace comes first. It's what we call prevenient grace, grace that comes before and, and does this work within us. But Luther took it in a direction that Augustine never intended. For Luther, the idea that God's grace works within us without us— um, means that no moral striving is ever of any relevance to the question of justification. And that's not what Augustine meant. Augustine mm. meant that the moral striving that saves us is the moral striving done in the state of grace. For Luther, there just is no moral striving that justifies you at all. In fact, he wrote, Luther wrote in his commentary on the Galatians that um, God never smiled on a man for his charity or virtues. So just, just completely discounting the idea of merit altogether. He utterly rejects the idea of merit. Uh, but he thinks he has out-Augustined August, Augustine, right? <laughs> Luther, Luther recognized that he was different from Augustine. He yeah. recognized mm-hmm. that he'd moved beyond Augustine. But he credits Augustine with being sort of the inspiration for that, for that move initially. And so the interpretation of Augustine, the application of Augustine in the Protestant Reformation became a, a real polemical point. So, so Catholics and Protestants would fight over the proper interpretation of Augustine. Now, why did they care? Early Protestants knew that they couldn't claim to be completely different from Christian antiquity. Like if Luther came out and said that I am utterly novel and what I've said is a complete innovation, that he wouldn't get a hearing. He had to be able to ground his teaching somewhere in sacred tradition for political purposes. And so Luther and Calvin and all the rest of them wanted to lay claim to the mantle of Augustine to say, hey, we're the real Augustinians, we're mm-hmm. the genuine Augustinian interpreters, and, and you Catholics, y'all are, the, y'all are the, the new Pelagians on the block. Pelagius was a heretic that Augustine had battled. But it was all polemics. Now, 
I myself am a convert to the Catholic Church, and one of the things that made me convert was I had grown up in this world of, of Protestant polemics, believing that Luther was a kind of uh, return to Augustinianism and a return to Christian antiquity. Then I went and read Augustine for myself. I read On the Spirit and the Letter, and I read all the rest of his anti-Pelagian works. I read thousands of pages of Augustine. Mm. When I got done, I came to the very unsettling conclusion <clears throat> that Gust, Augustine was, God forbid, a Catholic, <laughs> you know, which is why the Catholic Church calls him a doctor of the Church. Sure. I mean, he, is, he really is foundational. Now, there mm. is something um, that, that Protestants and Catholics alike do share an interest in St. Augustine that is not shared in the Catholic East. Right, so the eastern part of the Catholic world and the Orthodox world, they look at Augustine and go, uh, nice guy, pretty Western. We're going to hang with the Cappadocians. Thank you." You know, so there's a mm. different way of doing theology altogether in the East that, that typically is not constrained by Augustinian categories. Matt, a couple of great questions there. Thanks for checking us out in the UK, watching on YouTube this afternoon. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Greg uh, calling in from Connecticut, listening on the great Veritas Catholic Radio. Greg, delighted that you called back. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, thank you for taking my call today. I, I love your show, Dr. Anders. Um, and I have to say that I'm uh, my wife and I are signed up for the conference answers um, uh, the Catholic Answers Conference in, at the end of September, so I am into apologetics. And I know that there are uh, verses in the Bible uh, that we Catholics see as supporting the Eucharist, and Protestants didn't see it, or they worked around it somehow. Reminds me of Marcus Grotis, uh, Grotis uh show, uh, the ten verses I never saw before, something like that. But mm. I thought, Dr. Andrews, you would be Wonderful to ask this question um, about John chapter 6, the verses 55 through 67, where uh, Jesus talks about his, you know, his body in the, in the uh, Eucharist, so to speak, and the, he sees the apostles having a hard time of it, and he says, do you want to leave me too? And so we see him as doubling down, and so I was just wondering, Dr. Anders, what you, how, you, how you worked around that as a Protestant. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So uh, there are basically three Protestant doctrines of the Eucharist. Maybe more, but the three main ones. Okay, okay. There, here are the Protestant doctrines of the Eucharist. There's the Lutheran, there's the Zwinglian, and then there's the Calvinist. The Lutheran view of the Eucharist is that the Eucharist mm -hmm. is the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus without qualification. Right. So okay. he definitely has a very strong realist doctrine of the real presence. Now. Luther's not Catholic in his view of the Eucharistic presence because he denies transubstantiation. He has another mm. theory about how it works. But in terms of believing that he holds Christ in his hands, body, blood, soul, and divinity, Luther is, in that respect, as Catholic as Catholics are on, on, the, mm. on the notion of the real presence. And okay. this, for him, was a real sticking point with respect to the other reformers. He, 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 wouldn't re he would totally rejected Zwingli, for example, because Zwingli would not admit that. Now, Zwingli's view, Zwingli was a, a reformer from Zurich in the 1520s, um, was much more like what you think of this as the standard Protestant view today outside of Lutheranism. It was just, well, the Eucharist is a nice symbol of the death of Christ, right? But it doesn't really actually contain the substance of Christ's body and blood. Now, that, that division between Luther and, and Zwingli split early Protestantism right down the middle, and it was, it was quite vociferous. I mean, they really were at each other's throats, hammer and tongs, and, and Luther was 
the most vociferous. I mean, Zwingli was willing to make common cause with Luther, but Luther said Zwingli is possessed by the devil. I mean, he had absolutely no patience for the Zwinglian point of view at all. And it really was making the Protestant movement uh, difficult, right? Because how can you have a united front against the Catholic enemy, as they understood it, and claim that the Bible is clear and perspicuous and can be the rule of faith if the Protestant movement itself can't agree on an issue like this and split right down the middle? So here comes Calvin, who's, who's a generation later than Luther, and um, uh, he, he shows up on the scene in 1536 uh, in Geneva, Switzerland, as a young man, he's 27 years old. And then a few years later, about five years later, 1541, he writes a book called A Little Treatise on the Lord's Supper, uh, and I, the, the hubris, the arrogance of the man just never ceases to amaze me. <laughs> and he says, uh, you know, on a, on, a, on a matter that is of such importance to salvation, and that, that, that line right there struck me as a young Protestant, because we have a different view among evangelicals about, or had a different view about whether or not the Eucharist was so important for salvation. Mm-hmm. But he says, on a question so important for salvation, it's necessary that the Church come to unity on this. So I, Calvin, have stepped into the breach, wow, right, to bring wow. clarity where wow. my forefathers were not able to do so, right? <laughs> so that the idea that just because he sat down and put pen to paper, that was going to solve the problem. And what Calvin did was he split the difference between Luther and Zwingli. Again. And he split the difference. And so he would argue, he said explicitly that the Eucharist is a substantial partaking of the body and blood of the Lord. So he uses that language of substance and body and blood. Mm-hmm. Really, there is a realism to Calvin's doctrine of the Eucharist. But here's the trick. Now, hold on. You have to kind of put your thinking cap on to follow him here. This is how Calvin thinks it works. He thinks that the body of Christ physically remains in heaven. The worshiper remains on earth. But that the Spirit of God unites the worshiper to the physical body, blood, and divinity of Jesus in some way that is known only to God. There's a, it's, that's what's called the mystical presence. There is a real partaking of Christ's body and blood in, mm-hmm. the, in the rite of communion. But it's not a local presence. It's not a presence that you can hold in your hand. It's affected mysteriously by the Spirit of God. Now, if that strikes you as kind of, what? (laughs) (laughs) You're not alone. And many of Calvin's own contemporaries, people in his own church, couldn't quite wrap their heads around what he was saying, and they would tend to default either to the Lutheran view or the Mm -hmm. Zwinglian view. But that is the mediating reform position. Now, this brings me to the point I alluded to earlier. When Calvin said in 1541 that the doctrine of the Eucharist was so necessary for salvation, he said something that almost no Protestant would say today, maybe outside of Lutheranism. All right, so the, the, the broad sweep of, of modern evangelical Protestantism in North America typically views sacramental theology as of secondary importance. And they see, they see evangelicalism and Christianity as a kind of big tent that can incorporate a lot of diverse theological points of view. Mm-hmm. And their set of essentials it looks different today. You know, it would be things like the, author- the inerrancy and inspiration of the Bible, conversionism, being born again, justification by faith. Um, but, uh, but they think that within that umbrella, you can include a lot of different ecclesiologies, a lot of different sacramental theologies. They came to that view because... Protestants could never agree on the Eucharist, nor could they agree on church government, mm-hmm. because there was so many, there was so much diversity within Protestantism. Eventually, by the 18th century, mm-hmm. Protestant leaders, like George Whitfield in particular, kind of threw up their hands and said, oh, well, I guess we don't have to agree on these things. They must not be essential after all. Wow. And so that was the kind of environment I was raised in, one where I was told the essentials were having a relationship with Jesus, praying to invite Christ into your heart, believing in the authority of the Bible. Um, but on things like 
the sacraments and church government, eh, you know, each, you know, each to each, to each his own. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really have a strong opinion on the matter. And, and, you know, as I grew up and began to learn the confession of my own church, which was Presbyterian, I would probably have defaulted to the Calvinist view because that was the, mm-hmm. the view of my tradition, but without a lot of conviction because it just wasn't central to my experience of Christianity. Two things changed me, right? It's still Protestant to make me begin to take it more seriously. One was when I was in seminary, I actually took a class on the book of Leviticus. Of all things, a book, yeah. the book of Leviticus, very good <laughs> course. And uh, and I was really overwhelmed by the uh, the logic of Levitical law regarding purity and impurity, the sacred, the profane, and the holy, these categories that defined uh, Israelite worship, mm-hmm. Levitical worship, and the necessity to have ritual purity before you could, you could uh, engage in the sacrifice. And when I began to read St. Paul in light of what I learned from Leviticus, I began to see that for, for the apostle, the, the Levitical language, the priestly language of purity and, and holiness and impurity and sacrifice was all through St. Paul, but it no longer referred to the temple or the tabernacle or to a ritual purity. It was now an interior purity, a purity of heart uh, that, that would fit us for Christian worship. And, and if I began to see the parallelisms and recognize that if the call to Christian worship necessitates this deep interior purification, then there's something holy encountered in the context of Christian worship that I must treat as holy. And so Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 10 about sinning against the body and blood of the Lord, uh, the, the Eucharist being that occasion where the body of Christ is both present sacramentally and mystically in the, in the corporate collective, began to make me take the question of sacramental realism and ecclesiology much more seriously. And then interestingly, as I began to read and study Calvin and other Calvinists and saw how seriously my own forefathers in, in Presbyterianism had taken the question of the Eucharist, mm-hmm. I began to think, okay, maybe there's more to this Eucharist thing than meets the eye. And then when I finally became Catholic, believe it or not, it was Calvin, of all people, who had prepared me for the kind of sacramental realism that I would eventually come to embrace as a Catholic. Wow. Uh, Greg, is that helpful for you? Uh, I'd like to say you're a treasure to the Catholic Church, Dr. Anders, and we're blessed to have you in the Church. Well, so are you, Greg, and we appreciate you. Thank you kindly. Glad that you're listening on uh, a great affiliate of ours, uh, Veritas Catholic Radio there in Connecticut. Greg, thanks so much for your call, and that does open up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. A quick question here from uh, Catherine. How does one learn if a deceased loved one went to hell or purgatory? There's only one way you can know that, and I don't advise it, right? <laughs> uh, well, maybe two ways. Um, uh, the, the only way you could know that in this life would be through some private revelation, right? If God told you. And I, I, I say I'd, I don't recommend it because, mm. you know, it'd be, it would be hubristic and presumptuous of us to ask God to reveal such a sure. thing. And if you got something back, the likelihood is it would be your own imagination and not the Spirit of God. But that's occasionally you, you hear anecdotes down through the lives of the saints of some private revelation that comes to somebody like St. Padre Pio, for example, sure, who, who sure. may have some insight uh, about the disposition of some soul. But for, the, for most of us, uh, we, we don't know these things and, unless the subject is um, canonized by the Church and then we know with certainty that they're in heaven. Otherwise, we, we just don't know and we offer the holy sacrifice of the Mass and prayers for the repose of their soul. So we don't know. Uh, now, you can have a kind of, um, uh, a kind of, uh, sort of moral certainty 
not a, not an absolute certainty, but you know, if some if you know someone who, by all accounts, was a faithful Catholic person, died in the communion of the church, lived a holy life, uh, no obvious scandalous sin, you know, loved God and neighbor as near as you can tell, then then I, I kind of hope and confidence in their salvation would be well placed. Uh, you know, if someone died uh, in gross immorality, cursing God, well wouldn't necessarily mean that they didn't repent at the end, but, you know, you'd have some more concerns. Definitely. Uh, but uh, thank you so much uh, for your question, Catherine. I'm glad we could get to it uh, here on EWTN's Call to Communion. In a moment, we'll be talking with Mark in Cornelius, Oregon, Patricia, first-time caller from New Jersey, Sean in Nebraska, JR in Texas, Joanne in Texas. Lots more straight ahead on Call to Communion. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Glad you're with us on this uh, Wednesday afternoon. We'll get back to the phones in just a second. I was thinking about some of the wonderful books offered by EWTN's religious catalog, including Dr. David Anders' great book, uh, The Catholic Church, Save My Marriage. Well, you know what? You might be through or halfway through chapter three and you go, well, this is all I can read tonight. I'm falling asleep. Where's my bookmark? I need a bookmark. Well, we've got them. We've got some beautiful, lovely tapestry bookmarks to hold your place in that book. Beautiful tapestry bookmarks imported from Turkey, enhancing your reading with their holy pictures. Eleven images from which to choose, made with richly colored shimmering and gold threads, including St. Michael the Archangel, Virgin and Child, Crucifixion, so many more available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. Before we get back to it here, our congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, and that would be Good Shepherd Radio, serving Jackson, Michigan, now celebrating their ninth year with us. How about that? Congratulations to Bob Look and his great team there at WJKN from all of us here at EWTN Radio. All right, back to it now. Here is Mark in Cornelius, Oregon, listening on the great Modern Day Radio. Mark, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, I was uh, watching a movie called Lady Jane. It's about Lady Jane Grey, who was apparently queen for like nine days, and then she was executed. Not a great movie. I don't necessarily recommend it. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the movie. But in the movie, um, a priest comes to visit Lady Jane and says, My child, why do you not believe in the Eucharist? And she says, "Uh, I can't believe that Christ is in a piece of bread. And the priest says, well, we believe it because that's what Christ said. And then she responds with, but he also said, I am a vine, and he also said, I am a door. Now, it's not a Catholic movie, so the priest doesn't really get an opportunity to respond. He just has a dumbfounded look on his face like, (laughs) huh, I never thought about that. So if you were writing the script, how would you have that priest respond? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. So when when, uh, Lady Jane Grey went to church... Did she enter a ceremony where uh, everyone gathered around a sacred and consecrated gazebo with a door at the center, and and where everyone bowed down and adored this uh, you know this this frame, and then declared, "This is the door of life. This is the gate of heaven," 
and then you know stood up and said, we, we all confess and believe, as our forefathers did before us back for 2,000 years, that in passing through this door, we will be mystically translated into heaven because the door is Christ himself. He is present within the wood frame that has been constructed and properly consecrated with the valid formula that he gave us in instituting this rite of worship that has been central to our identity ever since. No, there's, there's nothing like that in the Catholic tradition. The Eucharist doesn't stand in the abstract as something invented that we pulled out of one passage of the Bible, right? The Eucharist comes before the Bible. The liturgy is, is the tradition that has been handed down from the mid- beginning. This is what Christ instituted as the central point of Christian life when he commanded the apostles, do this in memory of me. And there has been an unbroken tradition of 2,000 years confessing and believing that Christ gives himself to us in the form under the appearance mm. of bread and wine. And so it, it's not as though, uh, you know, we're, we're kicking back looking at the Bible and we're, you know, pulling out these various metaphors and then one day arbitrarily decide to take one at face value and to discount the others. That, that's, that's the way her objection would make it seem. But the, the truth is, is far different. Why is it, for example, that in John chapter 6, when Jesus uses the most realistic language and says, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink, and the, 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 the assembled hearers are offended at the realism and take flight, why does John himself feel it utterly unnecessary to explain, and by the way, I'm talking about the Eucharist here, right? In the same way that he doesn't find it necessary to explain in John chapter 3 when he says mm. that, you have to be born again in water and the Spirit, that this is, in fact, a reference to baptism. John's mm-hmm. the only gospel that doesn't explicitly mention the institution of baptism of the Eucharist by Christ, though it has these references that have always been understood in that way. And the reason John is able to spa- speak in this v- veiled and oblique fashion is because he wrote in and for a community that had probably a 50-year history of celebrating the liturgy, right? And so when he said... Jesus says that his flesh is real food. His hearers knew exactly what he was talking about because they've been confessing and believing and celebrating the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist for 50 years at least before his gospel was even written. Yeah. And so why is it that, that 2,000 years of Catholic interpreters have agreed that John is talking realistically about the Eucharist here and no one has ever thought that, cre- that Jesus instituted the right of the door? <laughs> True that. Right. And so the, the this objection, the, the, the character's objection, as well as the standard Protestant objection, forgets that the Bible sits at the heart of the liturgy and the heart of a 2,000-year-old tradition of interpretation. And the Bible is not—I mean, this is, the, this is the Protestant delusion, in my judgment, right? The idea that you know, one day God just dropped a book down out of heaven, and then, you know, some—, some Bedouin prophet stumbling along in the Middle East tripped over it and went, oh, here's a book, right? <laughs> Let's see if we can figure out what it means. Oh, I'll, uh, uh, this must be the rule of faith, that, that this is the utterly sufficient and unique guide to everything in Christian life, if only I can find the key to interpreting it. Too bad there isn't a key. Hmm, you know, I'll do my best to figure it out. Let's go find some some Greek and Hebrew lexicons. <laughs> oh, I already speak Greek and Hebrew. Oh, you know, don't need one of the... That's not the way it worked. Right. You know, the Bible is the product of the church, uh, written by churchmen yes. for the use of the church uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a liturgical context that already existed and already had meaning, and we can find witness to not only in Scripture, 
uh, not only in this passage but others, um, but in the writings of the, of, the, of the fathers of the late first and early second century as well. Mark, thanks so much for your call. It's called Communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Joanne, a first-time caller in Texas, listening on YouTube this afternoon. Hi, Joanne. What's on your mind today? Hi, can you hear me? Yes, go right ahead. Great. Um, there was a question about the rapture. Um, I have some folks that believe it's made up, not true. Can you comment on that? And also, when you take communion in a Catholic church, is it only half communion when they don't offer you the wine, and only the yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, the doctrine of the rapture is a made-up story, right? It's no part of Christian tradition. It's no part of Catholic tradition. It's not even a part of Protestant tradition until the 19th century, and it's certainly no part of, of Eastern Orthodox tradition or any other form of Christianity, historic Christianity, going back 2,000 years. This idea of the rapture is, is an utter innovation. Nobody ever heard of it until it was made up by a man named John Nelson Darby. And uh, the way he came up with it, I won't belabor you with the details, they're quite pedantic, but he, he, he invented the doctrine of the rapture as a way of fitting together a really, really convoluted theory of biblical interpretation. He, he, had, he was trying to squeeze a whole bunch of parts of the Bible together in a way that they don't really fit, and he needed a way in history to get Christians out of the way, right, because they were inconvenient to his view of history. So he, he invents this idea of the rapture so he can zip the Christian church out of earth and up to heaven, uh, that gives him seven years on earth in which he can he can uh, explore his apocalyptic fantasies, and then he brings them back at the end of time. But it's all it's all made up by uh, John Nelson Darby and the Plymouth Brethren tradition, and it spread like wildfire wildfire through American fundamentalism uh, in the early part of the 20th century through a book called the Schofield Reference Bible. Um, but uh, but it's no part of historic Christianity, no part of Catholic tradition, and no part of the Bible, to be honest with you. So you can t- totally dispense with the rapture, and the sooner the better, right? Yeah. Because it breeds paranoia and narrow-mindedness and a really uninformed, naive approach to, to, to geopolitical events. So get rid of it as fast as you can. Um, now, uh, with respect to communion, is it only half communion if you only receive the consecrated host and not the chalice? No, it's absolutely 100% all of Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity present under every particle of the host and every particle of the chalice. So the reason that we have communion in two kinds, the reason that there is bread and wine to become the body and blood of Christ, is not because you get half of Jesus in one and half of Jesus in the other. That's not the reason. The reason why is because the symbolism of bread and wine, with bread over here and wine over there, Mm -hmm. represents for us the separation of Christ's body from his blood, right? because it's the memorial of his death. Right, and so so that's why you have two kinds. Unlike other sacraments, we mm-hmm. just have one one kind of matter. The Eucharist, you have these two forms of matter, because by presenting them separately, you you, you show forth, you represent, you demonstrate the separation of Christ's body from His blood. And so the, the the purpose of the two kinds, the effect which is in that symbolism, is realized whether you commune or not. Right. So if I go to mass and the priest consecrates the the bread and the chalice, even if I sit in my pew and I don't commune. I can still behold this representation of Christ's death, this memorial of Christ's death, and it's fulfilled its purpose. But when it comes to the act of communion, the actual reception, uh, something different is signified, namely that Christ gives himself for me, right? That, I, yeah. that I'm incorporated into his body, um, that I have this intimate union with him. And so communion in either kind satisfies that, 
And, of course, the doctrine of the Church is that he is wholly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, under every particle of the host, every particle of the chalice. So I really do receive that which is symbolized to me. What's symbolized, the name of Christ's presence with us, is, in fact, effected sacramentally through transubstantiation of both host and chalice. All right. And thank you so much uh, for your call. We do appreciate that. Call to Communion here on EWTN, one of our great weekend programs that uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy. Dr. Doctor, that's coming up Saturday afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern. If you've never heard it, Dr. Doctor discusses practical and current medical topics with a focus on the dignity of the human person, body and soul. And to boot, Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association. Do check it out Saturday. Saturday afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. All right, back to the phones right now at 833-288-EWTN. Let's go to uh, Patricia, a first-time caller from New Jersey, listening on the great domestic church media. Hello, Patricia. What's on your mind today? I'd like to know, uh, why did St. Michael the Archangel kill Satan when he had the chance to do it. And then maybe all the evil in the world would be gone. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, uh, it's not at all clear that angels can be killed. Right? Um, like, humans can be killed because it's pretty easy to chop them up into little bits, and mm-hmm. you can you can destroy the bodily integrity mm-hmm. that, that is necessary for the proper functioning of their organ systems. Right, right. Angels have no organ systems, uh. right? And in fact, they're, they're almost, not quite, but they're almost completely metaphysically simple, meaning that there, there are no divisions, there are no parts. So, like, what would you break? You know, what would you stab? I mean, there's, there's, yeah. there's, there's nothing to destroy their biological. Mm-hmm. And the only, the only way in which angels are composite is that their their nature, their essence, is not identical to their act of being. So God could cause an angel to stop to exist, because he's the very act of being. But it seems to me that it, no other creature other than God could make an angel stop existing, right? Um, so it's not within the power of St. Michael to do this. Uh, now, the um, uh, the question about the, the origin and place of evil in the world, you're assuming that if there were no devil, there would be no evil. And um, I don't think that's true, right? I mean, if we look to even the account of the fall in Genesis, um, uh, Satan may have tempted Adam and Eve, but they're responsible for their own action. Mm. I mean, their, their sin is their sin. It's not Satan's sin. And right, so presumably right. they, they could have been tempted by, you know, a delectable piece of fruit, as it were, you know, or, or whatever that symbolizes uh, into, uh, into evil action. And, you know, so just, just because you remove the source of external temptation um, doesn't mean that humans don't have the capacity to sin. Okay. Hey, Patricia, great question. Thanks so much for checking in from New Jersey. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We do have time for another call or two at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here is Sean, now a first-time caller in Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hey, Sean, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, hey, can you guys hear me okay? Yes, go right ahead, Sean. All right, thank you. Um, I heard Dr. A. David Andrews, or uh, I heard him talking about the doctrine of St. Augustine and how it's different for Eastern Catholics and Orthodox than it is Western Catholics. And I was hoping you could explain that a little more. I, I am a recent convert from Greek Orthodoxy, and my father is actually a deacon in the Orthodox Church. And I remember talking to him about Augustine once, and he said, oh, well, you know, the Catholics take him a little more seriously than I would, but 
he's a good guy to read. So I was hoping you could kind of explain that a little bit. Yep, thanks. That's that's like precisely how I had characterized yeah. it. You know, that's, that's the way the East views Augustine. Uh-huh. So uh, there there are several points of difference here and uh, and points of emphasis. So one of them is that, um, and this is really the biggie, for Augustine, the the terminologically the the way he frames uh, the drama of salvation and redemption is in the terms that he drew from Paul's letters to the Galatians and the Romans. So the language of justification and grace and law are for Augustine the the primary categories. And that's typically not the case in the East, and for a variety of reasons. So, as you will know, I'm sure, uh, Paul wrote those letters to address a specific historic context, namely the relationship of Jews and Gentiles in the first century. And so for much of Christianity after the first century, once it had already become a Pauline church, excuse me, I'll become a Gentile church, uh, they looked at Paul and they said, yeah, Paul's great, we like Paul, but we, we got this Gentile thing figured out. Like, we don't, you know, that's really not a live question for us anymore. And there were other biblical metaphors for understanding salvation um, that, uh, in particular, uh, Peter's language in 2 Peter 1.4 about participating in the divine nature, or what the Eastern Church calls divinization, uh, in other parts of the Pauline epistles. So when St. Paul writes in uh, in 1 Corinthians that, that Jesus is the second Adam, that we fall in the first Adam and the second Adam renovates us, St. Irenaeus of Lyon picks that language up very much, and he's, his understanding of redemption and incarnation is that we regain in Christ what we lost in Adam, namely to be in the likeness and image of God. Mm. And so this second Adam and this sort of doctrine of renovation, recapitulation, comes out of Irenaeus. And then, of course, Athanasius the Great writes in his uh, wonderful treatise on the incarnation that God became man that men might become God, not not to mean like monistically to become the Godhead, but they, they come to share in the divine nature in the renovation of their own nature after after Christ's image and likeness. And so for Athanasius, somebody like Anthony the Great, the great desert father who founds Egyptian monasticism, is a picture of what salvation really ought to look like, someone whose whole life has been ethically transformed, uh, you know, into the likeness of Christ, and they begin to almost sort of, almost glow, as it were, like the uh, transfiguration. And so that, you know, that developed into somebody like Gregory Palamas, you know, into a doctrine of illumination, um, that uh, the light of Mont Tabor, which came to illuminate the apostles, illuminates us likewise. And that's really, all these different metaphors that are all biblical to understand the life of sal- grace and salvation that, that don't rely on the Pauline categories of justification and grace. So that's a, that's a major difference. Another difference, uh, of course, uh, one that is uh, more p- sensitive is Augustine's articulation of the doctrine of original sin, which typically uh, Eastern Christians don't like that language of original sin, and they have a different way of conceiving our, our relatedness to Adam, um, and so that becomes a, a, a point of conflict between East and West. And then, uh, and then from St. Cyprian, Augustine, he learned it from St. Cyprian, really p- piled into the idea of purgatory, a place of purification, which was construed in legal terms, right? Because his his uh, primary theological metaphors were legal, law, justification, these are legal terms. Um, and so while the East also has a doctrine of an intermediate state after death, they definitely, you know, pray for the dead, and they don't think that everybody goes, you know, straight away to the beatific vision. Um, they have a different way of accounting for what happens between death and glory, other than the language and the imagery of purgatory that typically holds sway within Latin Christianity. So that, that, those, are, those are some major differences. Now, there are some more esoteric differences. 
all of late antique Christianity is philosophically Neoplatonic through and through. So the, the, the corpus of, of Plotinus, uh, you know, the, the Alexandrian Roman philosopher Plotinus, really is the philosophical bedrock of Christianity, Latin, uh, and Greek. Uh, but Platonism uh, has different, Neoplatonism has different schools. And so there's the school of Porphyry, which would, uh, Porphyry, which Augustine was heavily influenced on. Uh, Proclus was more influential in the East. And so Dionysius the Areopagite, for example, uh, who had gone to influence, profoundly influence somebody like Maximus the Confessor and the Cappadocians, um, more of the Proclean kind of Neoplatonism. So there are different philosophical emphases that come in as well. And uh, that, you know, sort of leads to different metaphysics and uh, on down the road. So, uh, you know, from a Catholic point of view, from a Latin Catholic point of view, uh, I look at all of these guys and I say, great, you know, they're all Catholic, and theology is a human discipline that seeks to find the intelligibility of, of, of a mystery of the Word of God. There's room for philosophical nuance and disagreement and schools of thought and all the rest of it. And as Pope John Paul II said, the, the church, you know, breathes with two lungs, east yes. and west, and, and the patrimony belongs to all of us. And, you know, our, in our particular rites, whether you're a Roman rite or you're a Byzantine rite or whatever, you have your own school of thought, your own philosophical, theological, cultural, liturgical expression, and those things are quite beautiful, and they're really a treasure for the entire church to appreciate, and it's right and just for us to sort of keep our own cultural patrimony as long as we don't become ethnocentric about it and say that our way is the only way. Yeah. Sean, is that helpful for you, sir? Uh, yes, that was very helpful. Thank you very much. Very good. Thanks so much for your call. Got a uh, quick note here from Jessica watching us on YouTube. Hi, Tom and Dr. Anders. Your show is one of my favorites. It always makes my day. It helps me cognitively as well because I learned so much from you, Dr. Anders. Thank you. Well, you're very sweet, and I appreciate that. And believe it or not, it's the best part of my day, too, because I can't believe that we get to do this. It's I so know. much fun to get on the radio and talk about the Catholic faith. Isn't it indeed? Here is Fritz now. Now, a first-time caller from Texas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Fritz, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, I, uh, I read Luke. Uh, Jesus said, Strive down in the straight gate. Uh, Peter in uh, Acts 10 said, uh, He that uh, feareth God and works righteousness. And James says, We see that how by works man is justified, not by faith only. Now, compare that with what Paul said. Paul says, But now, but now, but now, in Romans, it is no more of works it's no more we're no more under the law salvation is free without works it's totally different the dispensations change and that's what i'm going for i know i'm saved and i'm going to heaven because i'm no good and i have a savior that's great he shed his blood on the cross and he says in first corinthians chapter 15 if you believe that jesus died on the cross for your sins was buried and rose again yeah, you Fritz, have you got life. a question yeah you guys are full of baloney Okay, yeah, I really appreciate that. Thanks. <laughs> I, I love criticism. That's my favorite kind of call. Yeah, thank you. Uh, although I'd prefer it be a dialogue and not an insult. You know? Sure. Um, so uh, Fritz's position, right, is one that I'm well aware of, and he, he takes the view that the Bible does not speak with one voice, right, that there are divergent paths of salvation presented within sacred scripture, that Paul says one thing and James says something else. And uh, this is called dispensationalism, and uh, many dispensationalists believe, for example, that the teaching of Jesus, because it's so inescapably and irreducibly ethical, Christ makes all these ethical demands and says, you know, if you do this, you'll be saved, if you don't do this, you won't be saved, that uh, Jesus clearly can't be preaching the same message as St. Paul, right, who, who they would think is teaching this message of salvation by free grace without any kind of works or ethical component at all. 
and, uh, and so it, it puts them in the ironic position of being Christians who don't actually think that you have to follow the teaching of Jesus, right? That strikes some of the rest of us as a bit odd, a strange place for a Christian to start by discounting the centrality of Christ's ethical teaching to the Christian life. But mm-hmm. I, I understand the, as it were, quasi-logic of the position. But of course, it, it hinges on assuming that you've got the right interpretation of Paul, right? That, that Paul is an antinomian, that Paul ultimately believes that that moral striving has no place to play in in salvation, right? And uh, that, of course, I think is based on a profound misunderstanding of what Paul means when he says that we're saved by grace and not by works of the law. And I'm running out of time, so to put, put it briefly, the, the 2,000 years of Catholic history and tradition, as well as r- rigorous research into the thought of the second century church fathers and, and what first century language meant, has conclusively demonstrated that works of the law in St. Paul means those things that distinguish Jew from Gentile, mm. right? Uh, I can give you some scholarship on that. So if you look at, say, Matthew J. Thomas's book, um, uh, Paul's work, I think, it's that, I think it's the author's name, Matthew <coughs> Thomas, Paul's works of the law in the second century, reception. You read about what, what did the people who knew the apostles think Paul meant by the language of works in the law? Those very closest to the early days of Christianity, how did they understand that language? Um, a book by a modern scholar like N.T. Wright called What St. Paul Really Said, uh, Christer Stendhal's book, Paul Among Jews and Gentiles. These would be some places to go to substantiate my claim that when Paul says we're saved by faith and not by works of the law, excuse me, he says we're justified by faith and not by works of the law, what he means precisely is that we're declared to be members of God's covenant people, like we come into relationship with the covenant people of God by an act of faith in Christ, not by Mosaic law-keeping. Because the context there, of course, is when Gentiles become believers, do they have to circumcise themselves, keep the laws of kosher, mm-hmm. and all the rest of it? And Paul emphatically says no. That's that's what that language in Paul is about. But when it comes to the living of the ethical life, he's quite clear that it is the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit that pours out God's love into our heart, that enables us to obey the divine command of love God and love of neighbor, and that in doing that, we fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, which is why Paul can say in Romans 2.13 that it's not those who hear the law, it's those who obey the law who will be, who will be justified, who will be declared righteous. It doesn't come by moral striving to keep a precept written on tablets of stone. Mm. It comes because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, inwardly transforming us. So um, I, I think that the dispensational position uh, most unnecessarily separates Paul from the teaching of Jesus, and for that matter separates contemporary Christians from the teaching of Jesus, because it insists dogmatically and ignorantly on a gross misunderstanding of what Paul meant. Appreciate your unpacking that there. Thank you so much for that. Uh, We did not get to a question from Nelson watching us on YouTube. Uh, However, our intrepid producer, Charles, is going to uh, grab that question, and we'll lead off with that tomorrow. Hey, Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thank you. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio, 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast, and then that's encored for you at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Check out the podcast anytime you wish by going to EWTN.com slash radio, EWTN.com slash radio. Click on the word podcast. That'll take you right to it. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Have a wonderful day. We will see you tomorrow for the Thursday Call to Communion. God bless.